0: not racist is a discursive form of racist violence. <laughs> so you've got these anti-racist activists urging people to be racist in order to not be racist. It makes no sense. If you redefine words and then deny that you are redefining the words, you effectively end up gaslighting the world. Mm-hmm. What is a woman is not a gotcha question. We all know the difference, but we're expected to proclaim that we don't, that there is no difference. If, if, if you can't sit there and tell me what a woman is, then I don't trust you on anything else. But if you say what everyone knows, you open yourself up to accusation and you can be the next to be condemned. We can't vote these people out. You can vote in a Labour government or a Tory government, you're still going to get the woke. If the machinery of government is grinding in that direction, there is nothing you can do. When a school board, a county school board, not only removes the books from the shelves, but burns them and calls it a flame purification ceremony, and they can't see what the implications of that are. I don't believe they could have done that if they could see with any sense.
1: Did you know that you can ask guests your questions. That's right. When you join our
2: locals community, not only will you know who we're about to interview, you have the opportunity to ask them your questions. You have the chance to ask Jordan Peterson, the co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, Nigel Farage, Douglas Murray, Andrew Doyle, Jeff Norcott, Simon Evans, Larry Elder, David Badil, Andrew Sullivan, Megan Kelly, Julia Hartley Brewer, Lord Nigel Lawson, Brett Weinstein, Inaya Falarin Iman, Dr. David Nutt, Jimmy Dore, Gad Sad, Blair White, Melissa Chen, Trevor Phillips, Ian Hersey Ali, Glenn Lowry, Bridget Fettersy, Jim Rickards, Carl Benjamin, and so many more. Plus,
1: we're about to interview some of the biggest guests in the world. We can't name them just yet, but trust me, they're huge. Metaphorically speaking, not just because they're American. Our Locals gives
2: you access to a great community of like-minded people where you can share memes and make new and problematic friends. You also get early access to live shows and we're about to release details of our tour, so you'll want to know about that as well. On the higher tiers, you get monthly supporter calls and the opportunity to have a meal or a call with us.
1: Click the link below or go to trigonometry.locals.com and join the community.
2: That's trigonometry.locals.com. We'll see you there.
1: Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster.
2: I'm Constantine Kissin.
1: And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people.
2: Today we are delighted to say returning for the 73rd time. Uh, It's our brilliant friend Andrew Doyle, who's of course comedian, satirist, TV presenter and the author of his latest book, which is called The New Puritans, How the Religion of Social Justice Captured the Western World. Andrew, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. It's great to have you on. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. I have been on a lot. You have been. Haven't I? 73rd is an exaggeration. An exaggeration. It's actually 79. Yeah. Yeah. but Because I was on the second ever one you did, I think. You were. And you, you know what? You confessed to us... Yes. That you were very sceptical about, and you nearly didn't come on the show. In fact, you dedicated,
0: in this book, you talked about how that brief moment of trust that you showed has resulted in our friendship. Well, exactly. I'd never met either of you, and I was very paranoid. That was my height of my paranoia, and I I, I almost didn't come, because I thought it was like a a, a setup. I thought you were going to do all these gotcha questions and and try and make me look like a fool. I probably did look like a fool, but that wasn't because of your the way you it was, it was a great interview. Was it all right? Yeah, it I yeah. haven't watched it back, so I don't know. No, no, it was,
1: it was I great. I remember the, it got something like 13,000 views or something like maybe...
2: Given that we had 13 subscribers maybe. at the yeah, time, it was they, quite they a lot. They each
0: watched it a thousand <laughs>
1: times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: It, it, it was great. And I will confess from our end as well that we actually didn't know that much about you. No. And, <laughs> and we, need, we just knew that you were writing for Jonathan Pye. Yes. And we were keen to speak to him and to you because oh, you're using you, me to
0: get to him exactly uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, that, yeah fair that, enough. that's what yeah. we were doing yeah.
2: but actually it's funny how that's worked out because he's obviously gone in his own direction but i think you've contributed so much to many of the conversations that we've had and frankly to just the cultural landscape in the uk you know and this is one of the things that really uh, strikes me about you know the personal stuff that you talk about in the book because you open with a very old good friend of yours a fellow colleague, we won't go into the details, Um,
0: you know, going after you very hard. Yes. It was a weird one. So, I I mean, this is how how I've opened the book because I think so many people have lost friends through this culture war. So many people I've spoken to, sometimes family members, all over the slightest point of political disagreement. And um, this was an event that took place in a bar in Soho. And I was out with this married couple who I've known for many years, and we were having a great time. We were having drinks. We were a bit tipsy. But about an hour in, he started shouting at me, screaming at me, calling me a Nazi. And I thought it was a joke. And then I probed a bit and I realized, oh, no, it's not. And he's been thinking about this for a while. And then I tried to work out what it was. And it turned out it was because he didn't like that I'd written for Spiked magazine. He, he uh, I'd satirized, one of the Jonathan Pye videos had satirized a point of view that he held. And that was basically it. And I couldn't, and I was like, but that's not fascism.
1: <laughs> dis- disagreeing
0: with you slightly on political issues is not the same as calling for an ethno state. Uh, you know, it's just not the same. So um, it was weird. So really the book is about me trying to make sense. Of what kind of world are we in now where someone who knows me, knows what I believe, knows that I'm a vocal opponent of racism, knows that I have no, that fascism is everything I stand against, knows that, nonetheless can convince himself, and this is an intelligent person, that I'm a, that I'm a Nazi. What kind of world can we be in where that can happen? So my book's an attempt to explain how we reach that point. Yeah. How do we reach the point where it's casually said in the mainstream media that J.K. Rowling is transphobic or has said transphobic things when she actually has never said transphobic things? How are we in this position where people are just buying into fantasies, even though the evidence is there, should you want to spend a minute to Google it? what What's going on? Uh, so that's That's why it's a
2: really good point, Andrew. I've never, I I think those of us who've been sometimes on the receiving end of some of the stuff, we haven't actually processed in some ways what the significance of what you're talking about. Like whether it's David Lammy going on on the BBC and saying that Brexiteers, the ERG are worse than Nazis or your friend calling you that. Like, I don't think we've quite understood like what what a deranging worldview it takes for someone
0: to think, like that we've started to accept it haven't we yeah i mean like even with gb news if you think about when gb news was announced four months before it was aired you had thousands of activists and mainstream commentators mm-hmm. saying this is a far right echo chamber no one had seen it no one <laughs> like, no one knew what it not even the people who were in it knew what it was at that point and then when it was on the screens and it clearly wasn't that and there were clearly a balance of left and right wing views and you, people you know gb news always makes an effort to bring people in with different voices even when it's clearly not what they said it was, they still say it is what the, the, the fantasy they decided yeah. on. So, so I think all of this, and there's so many examples of this kind, um, you know, 90, I'm sure you must have the same, 99% of the people who attack you online, right? They will be people who've just decided what you are and created this monster of their imagination in order to attack. Um, I, I, I rarely have uh, an angry critic come at me and faithfully replicate what I think. They'll say, oh, well, you believe this, you believe this. They often say I'm a public, pu- uh, private, privately educated, Tory-loving homophobe. I get that a lot. <laughs> and it's like, well, I went to a comp, I've never voted Tory. And, you know, if I'm a homophobe, my boyfriend better be told about that. You know, it's like, it's, it's, they're just so wrong. And even when you point out that they're wrong and you, and you say, no, this is what I actually believe. I mean, look, when I announced this book, The New Puritans, I had loads of tweets saying, we're going to burn this book. Uh, this is the sort of book I would throw in the bin. Why are you against social justice? I'm like, well, read the book (laughs) and you (laughs) will understand that I'm not against social justice. I'm against people co-opting the phrase. But yeah, but it's become so, it is maddening. That's the word that, you're right to use that word because, you know, this is a movement. I think think everyone's baffled. Everyone's baffled because, you know, most people are decent people and they want everyone to have an equal shot of things in life. Mm. And this movement comes along that uses all these really progressive sounding phrases like social justice anti-racism equity and so good people are like oh okay well we should get on board with that obviously but they can sense and see that what the movement's actually doing is against all of those things it's creating more racism it's dividing us it's it's uh it's it's not advancing the cause of social justice it's legitimizing bullying it's uh it's a, got a vicious Uh, inhuman, cruel quality about it. And we can see all of this stuff. And people can see, but they're confused because it's sold to them in this progressive language. So one thing I really realized in in writing the book is that this is a battle, the culture war is a battle about language and about who gets to define words. And so in order to, in the book, I have to first explain what the movement is, what what its objectives are, what it achieves. And all of that is counter to how it describes itself. So it's really messy and complicated. That's why it needed a full book because you can't just explain that straight away. You can't explain, you know, if you take the phrase anti-racism, we're all against racism. So why would you object to the principle of anti-racism until you read a book such as How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, and you realize that what he means by anti-racism is not what we mean by anti-racism. What he means is being proactive in the discovery of racism on the assumption that all human interaction is underpinned by racism and that all white people are complicit in white supremacy, whether they want like it or not. That's the Robin DiAngelo take on it. That, you know, these are the... the and so therefore, in fact, Alana Lent, He put... Uh, sorry, Ibram X. Kendi in his book says that the dichotomy of not racist and racist isn't real. And that being not racist is just another form of racism. Similarly, Alana Lenton, who's another critical race hustler, said that um, to be not racist is a discursive form of racist violence. <laughs> so to be not <laughs> racist is violent. <laughs> So you've got these anti-racist activists urging people to be racist in order to not be racist. It makes no sense. So you have to talk it through and explain why, if you're genuinely against racism, you have to be opposed to anti-racism. So how do people make sense of that? And this is deliberate, isn't it? If you redefine words and then deny that you are redefining the words, you effectively end up gaslighting the world. Mm. And that word gaslight is their word, isn't it? Yeah, I love it. Well, it comes from that 1940 film where you know, the husband is constantly lowering the lights and the wife is saying, why is it getting dimmer in here? And he's saying, no, that's just your head. It's all in your mind. And that's what they do to us all the time. So they'll say, this is a largely peaceful protest. There's burning buildings behind the guy, but he'll just say, oh, it's largely peaceful because they think by describing something as largely peaceful, it becomes largely peaceful. Mm -hmm. Everything's about the language and they can deny the observable reality in front of your eyes and they'll do it and that will drive you insane. Uh, And they'll blindside you with jargon. And they'll say you're too stupid to understand critical race theory, even though the, the fundamental precepts are not that difficult to grasp. And they'll throw jargon at you, and they'll they'll put you off. And um, actually, what I've what I've and what I've tried to do in the book, because I think actually this stuff is understandable. And the only way we can defeat it is if we get it, if we have a, a secure grasp of what it is they're doing and how to push back against it. So that's the point.
1: Sounds like the words of a Nazi. But there we go. <laughs> <laughs> but. The point you make about words is very profound. Like when you were talking about how they've changed the meaning of words, yeah. And the most obvious instance of this is the word "woman." Yeah. Where suddenly right. we all knew what a woman was five, six years ago, but now the word "woman" is up for grabs. That's just insane.
0: Yeah, and you can see when when a politician is asked what is a woman. Yeah. You know, have you seen the, they've started saying <laughs> that's like a gotcha question. Why are you using these gotcha questions? What is a woman is not a gotcha question. It's actually a, a means to test the honesty of the ruling class. If, if, if you can't sit there and tell me what a woman is, then I don't trust you on anything else because I know you know what a woman is. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the point. You see mm-hmm. the fear in their eyes. They're terrified. Like they stammer, they, 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 they reach, they obfuscate, they do anything but answer the question. Nick, I'm not... I don't think we can conduct this debate with... You know, sorry, do, I, I, get I offended this, like, you. In no, somewhere. no, no. it's just, uh, no, no, no. I just. And the reason they're so afraid is not just because they're engaged in a lie, but because they know everyone knows it's a lie. You know, the, the, this idea that none of us know what the difference between men and women. We all know the difference, but we're expected to proclaim that we don't, that there is no difference. And that's that's why I think that's a very good example of of uh, the the notion of a kind of. It's not just mass hysteria. It's people going along with the hysteria for the sake of self-preservation. Which is why in the book, I've I've drawn a lot of parallels with the Salem witch hunts. Because I think there's a really good way to understand what's going on at the moment. If you look back at that unique moment in history, which only lasted about a year uh, in the late 17th century in in, in Salem. And you had a small community. By the way, I mean, the, the Puritans of New England were not witch hunters. This is not something they did. In medieval Europe, thousands of women were burnt as witches. This didn't happen. The Puritans weren't like this. This was a lapse. It was an aberration. And what's so interesting to me about that is you have this community of decent, good people who would suddenly believe there are witches everywhere because this small group of girls claimed that they could see them. And so, uh, and it only lasted that, that short period of time. But what happened, the key parallel here is not just about the human susceptibility for groupthink or the way in which we go along with, narratives if we're told to it's not just that it's it's that the elites were propagating it so it would never have happened if when these girls started screaming that there are witches everywhere if the judges and the magistrates and the ministers had said no that's not true it would have ended overnight but they didn't they became complicit they said it is true it's like our politicians they could all say we all know what a woman is can we stop this now they don't they go along with it you know and they say oh actually yeah there is a so they go along with the activists and they perpetuate the hysteria. And that's where I think the main, the main parallel between the two things exists. Um, and the other thing about what I found fascinating about the Salem instance is the more I read about it, the more I realized a lot of the elites didn't believe it. They just didn't believe it. There's a really interesting moment where one girl in court, because you know, they were pointing at the women on the stand saying they were yeah. sending their shape out mm. to pinch them and torment them. They would say, oh, they've just, their spirit has just flown up to the beam. I can see it. No one else could see it, but it was the girl's lived experience. It was all, the, all of the prosecutions were secured by what they called spectral evidence. We call it lived experience. What it means is my truth. I don't need evidence. It's just my truth. I feel it, therefore it's true. So it's the same thing. Like just as today, the accusation of Nazi, fascist, racist, homophobe is taken as proof because that is the lived experience of the accuser back in Salem. The spectral evidence was, was taken as proof. And they would say, and as I was saying, though, this one girl, it's a really interesting moment. She pulls out a small bit of knife, uh, something that's been broken off a blade. And she's cut herself and she says, the witch has just dug this into me. And a man at the court, a local farmer said, that, that's broke off my knife the other day. And you saw that happen and you picked it up. And so they knew she'd been lying. But instead of acknowledging this, the magistrates say, oh, well, let's quickly move on to the next thing. There's loads, if you read the court records, there's loads of examples of, you know, they will accuse William Phipps, the governor of the colony. They accused his wife and the magistrates just said, let's move on. That's not real. Let's move on. They accused uh, the the acting president of Harvard College, a guy called Willard, Samuel Willard. Uh, They accused him and the magistrate said, you must be mistaken. You must be talking about Constable Willard, who's already in jail. You've already accused him. You're getting confused. Well, does the devil get confused? Or do the elites know actually this isn't real but if we speak out they'll accuse us mm. and that's where we're at today we all know the difference between male and female we all know that this anti-racist movement is making society more racially divided but if you say what everyone knows you open yourself up to accusation and you can be the next to be condemned and it's a different form of condemnation you know no one's going to get hanged as the, uh, the stakes were pretty high in salem but we could you can have your life destroyed your reputation destroyed your career destroyed if you if you say what we all know to be true so there are, there are parallels. And, it, it, and, and the other reason I wanted to talk about that account is that it's a really good way to get out of this. There's there's a lesson in Salem of how to get out of this. Uh, firstly, it stopped because there was a tipping point. When too many people started saying, no, the girls are lying, there are no witches, mm-hmm. it just stopped. That was one thing. Uh the the second thing that happened is that the some of the I think it was the deputy governor wrote to the leading clergymen in the country and said can we use spectral evidence can we prosecute on the basis of spectral evidence and they said no that's not admissible <laughs> and so all of the things collapsed overnight so I think it will just take people to stand up and say no the witches aren't real we don't live in a country you know uh, which is full of fascists uh, we, we can look at the evidence again and, and go by and make our judgments based on evidence, not based on lived experience and feeling. And if everyone just did that, if all the people in power just did that, this would end and we'd be out of it.
1: But in the play, the Arthur Miller play, it was John Proctor who had to sacrifice himself in order yeah.
0: that this could come to an end. Well, that was real. I mean, so when Arthur Miller wrote The Crucible, yeah. the, the figures in that who end up being hanged, Rebecca Nurse... Yeah. Uh, John Proctor, etc. They were real figures who were hanged because they were so devout. They weren't prepared to say, they weren't prepared to lie to save their necks, because they they believed in the the everlasting perdition, hellfire and damnation. They weren't going to damn themselves by lying. Um, but a lot of people did. A lot of people would just say, yeah, I've 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 met with the devil, because they were terrified of being hanged. And they said that they'd signed his book and all the rest of it. And of course, the Puritans believed in mercy. I mean, I call this book the New Puritans, but they're nothing like the Puritans of old. It's an analogy. The Puritans of old really believed in mercy, and they would—they—they they had incredible leniency. Leniency. The courts would let you off if you confessed to witchcraft. Um, but yeah, you're right. The the John Proctors of this world—that also brought okay. when people like him, when people like Rebecca Nurse, these local people who everyone loved, started being hanged, people got concerned. You know? But.
1: It needs people like that. Yeah. And it, and what my worry is, Andrew, is I see the elites of people at the top. None of them have that in level of integrity. No, but
0: like we do need people like that. And I think the way out of this hysteria, which is what I think it is, will come, there will be people who will be sacrificed along the way. The people who speak out earliest. Thanks for hmm. looking at me, mate. Well, what I'm just saying, saying <laughs> The, the people, is, people will be cancelled. They, yeah. they already have been. Yeah. You know, people like Gillian Phillip, Rosie Kay, mm. your people who've lost their jobs, been dragged through the courts, all that sort of stuff. And it will continue to happen. But then it will reach a point where so many people are getting cancelled. Everyone will be like, enough, we're, we're going to speak out about it. So I think, yeah, you're right. Like some people will, you know, it'll be horrible and for some. You, but it you, makes it easier, doesn't it, for the people to speak out later. Yeah, yeah it does, definitely. And, well, I was going to ask you something else, but
2: before I do, where, If we take the analogy that you've given yeah. of the witch trials in Salem and the process by which eventually people come round to having a, a
0: sensible view of these yeah. things, where are we on that journey with this? Well, I thought things were getting better. And then, of course, the the, the, the key events of the summer of 2020 where the culture war exploded into the mainstream and all of the stuff that all three of us have been talking about for years. You remember how you, people used to dismiss us and say, Oh, it's just a few students. You're you're whinging about a few overzealous people on on university campuses. No one says that anymore, do they? No. Because it's now in the mainstream. The evidence of what we've been talking about is everywhere. It's irrefutable. Uh, but it doesn't. There doesn't seem to be any sign of the momentum slowing, does there? You don't think so? No, not really. There are. I, let me put some
2: counterpoints to you, which yeah. I've I've been thinking about. So, as you know, I've said from day one that logically it would be the trans thing that broke intersectionality. Yes. Because the level of suspension of disbelief and the level of damage, visible damage that would be done in the name of trans ideology yeah. would would be difficult even for people who are prepared to live with a lot of cognitive dissonance. I agree. To, to, to maintain that illusion. And we've seen the shutting down of Tavistock yes. here in the UK. We've seen thousands of parents now suing Tavistock. We see every day more and more detransitioners. I read this incredibly powerful piece yesterday uh, by a parent who had transitioned. I don't know if you saw this. It was it was literally called "I transitioned my child, I regret it" or something along I those lines. Very, very powerful. You're starting to hear these stories of people who've gone along with this and then either themselves suffered through surgery and whatever, or they've they've hurt children yeah. their own children and those voices are more and more audible now to me combined with you know changes in reality and in the, the, the clinic being shut down the Alison Bailey case yeah. the Maya Forstarter case you're starting to see some shifts on that issue are you not you're not reassured that that is the
0: start of the momentum at least slowing oh yeah i mean all of that stuff's incredibly reassuring and i think that those are signs that we're Things might be healing, but I think because we obviously we talked like-minded people a lot, we maybe miss how embedded this is. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, closure of the Tavistock is one thing, but look at the way that the trans activists have tried to spin that as a good news story, and that actually it just means that they're going to be able to open up gender clinics around the country that are more localized. Of course, it's not good news for them because it means that things will be scrutinized more more closely. But absolutely, I mean, you're right that the the extremity of what they are expecting us to swallow. Uh, will be its own undoing, right? Because, look, we all know that the majority of gender non-conforming children are gay or turn out to be gay in later life. So you are effectively have a supposedly progressive movement that is effectively medicalizing gay kids. And if you'd have said that to anyone 10 years ago, who would have believed that that would be even possible? But do people fully understand that? Gay and
2: autistic, by the way. Gay and
0: autistic. Or or, or people with other issues. There will be some children who have gender dysphoria, but they are the minority. So... Who would have believed that like 10 years back? Who would have thought that was something that could potentially happen? And like Salem, it all burst out very, very quickly and ended very, very quickly. This has all come about over the past 10 years and hopefully will burn out just as quickly. But it's going to take one major tipping point, I think. I don't know. And I am reassured by 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 stuff like that. But look, do you remember that there was someone put up a composite image of all the Labour MPs holding up a sign saying, ban trans conversion therapy, right? Now, of course, when you dig in, that sounds great because conversion therapy, you think of like back in the day when they used to put electrodes on gay men and try and shock them out of their homosexuality. Um, but of course, it's not conversion therapy. When they, What they call trans conversion therapy is a specialist, a, a pediatric gender specialist talking to a child to tease out what other possible reasons there might be for this sense of dysphoria, be that homosexuality, internalized homophobia, be that autism, all those kind of things that you mentioned. Uh, they say that's conversion therapy. Because they believe there's an innate gendered soul and this person's just and that it should be affirmed automatically whenever anyone makes that claim. So when a labor politician holds up a sign saying ban trans conversion therapy, they're effectively holding up a sign in support of conversion therapy mm. because they are effectively putting gay kids on a pathway to heterosexualize and fix them. But do they understand that? No. If if those politicians understood the implications of what they were saying, they wouldn't hold up that sign. But we've reached the point where the language has been redefined and shifted so much that people don't understand what it is they're supporting. I'm convinced that the majority of people, if they had a full grasp of what the social justice movement is all about, wouldn't support it. Very, very few would support it. Even the 13%, which is what the More In Common initiative uh, found, roughly 13% of the country would be classified as woke, would be classified as supportive of these critical social justice ideologies, the various interlapping strands of it. Um, even them, if they understood what it was they were supporting, I think the majority of them would back away in a heartbeat. You know, and the other good thing, by the way, about that 13% figure is it shows that these people, because this is often, the culture was often mischaracterized as the old failing to keep up with the young, failing to keep up with changing trends. But they are a minority in every generation, including the young. And that's bad news for the activists. Yeah, there's a higher preponderance of younger people, but still the majority of younger people are against it. And if those younger people understood that they were actually supporting illiberal, dangerous, divisive, regressive ideas, they would back away too. So it's all about, the way out, I feel, is all about understanding, is all about exploding their myths, you know, they put up this brick wall of language to deter understanding. And once you, once people understand what they're actually saying, uh, then it won't be sustainable. And I,
1: Go, go for
0: it. Uh, Andrew, I was going to... Uh, something I I hope you don't
2: mind me sharing with, with our audience, but when we were in Edinburgh, we did a live show together. And before, you know, we spent a bit of time together because w- the three of us were always running around. We're super busy. Yeah. We actually, even though we're very good friends, we don't actually get to hang out that much. No. But we did hang out a little bit. And one of the things I realized about your y- you is that you were very, very early to all of this. You were very early to all of this. So the the falling out with which you begin the book happened way before like Francis and I were doing trigonometry or any of that. You saw this very, very early. Yeah. Uh, First, and and really, I want to ask you two things about that. First of all, what was that like for you?
0: And secondly, why do you think you saw it that early? I think think it's more, I don't think it's uh, like I'm a Nostradamus or anything like that. (laughs) I think it's more that it's not in my nature to... I, I can't just say something that I know not to be true. It's, it's not something I, I can't do it. Mm. So, for instance, and because it's all happened so quickly, like when the, the Brexit vote happened in 2016, and because the left and Labour has always been anti-EU, uh, you know, the, the, it, it, was a, it was a sudden change. It was a sudden sea change overnight. I mean, like, even Owen Jones wrote an article saying why we need to get out of the... I think he coined the phrase Lexit, why we need to get out of the EU. This was a standard left-wing position. Jeremy Corbyn was campaigning for 40 years to get out of the EU, you know. Um, and all of a sudden, all my left-wing friends were saying that, oh, yeah, we're really pro-EU. They were really pro this trading bloc, this undemocratic, bureaucratic trading bloc that has capitalism in, at the heart of its constitution. I'm like, this isn't a left-wing stance. And... um, so I, uh, when I did my show in Edinburgh at the stand in 2016, so it was about a month after the vote, or so it was around the same time. So I did a pro Brexit set. Effectively, I rewrote my show to talk about that, and that was that was a really fun challenge because I had to, because I knew all the audience would be remainers, and so I had to get them on side before I dropped that into the show, and that, that was quite kind of fun. Um, sometimes it wouldn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> because it became hysteric- hysterical. Hysterical were running very high. Yeah, I mean, I, I realized this. And I remember putting a post on Facebook just saying, look, can everyone, you know, calm down a bit. Uh, we're not all evil. The thing got reduced. And it was the first time I've ever seen this, where a, a major political issue in which everyone was engaged, people were more politically engaged than ever. People were having debates and discussions in like pubs and, you know, everywhere. It was, it was really fascinating. Um, but it got reduced, not just by... Like people online, but by mainstream media as a debate between good and evil, a debate between racist and not racist. And I'm like, this is not mapped onto the reality. And I started to notice this. Vince Cable stood up uh, at his spring conference and said that the reason people voted to leave was because they were nostalgic for the empire. Which is just not a thing. <laughs> there is no one who's nostalgic for empire. You might be able to find one or two crackpots here and there. There'll be a colonel in There'll Kent somewhere. There'll be someone, yeah, right. But none of us. That's not a. Th- it's just not a thing, right? So this complete fantasy without any evidence. He said people were nostalgic for the time when faces were white and passports were blue, and the the map, the global map, was coloured pink. Who are you talking about? You've just decided this thing, and you've asserted it as th- as though it's the truth. And it was the first time I was really seeing stuff like that. This people who were mistaking. Their own arguments for proof, and it was happening. I know that's always happened to some extent, but this was happening across the board, mm. and it was. And the whole political landscape was being Disneyfied. There were villains and there were heroes, and that was it. And I'm like, this isn't real. I could tell none of this is real. People are getting upset, painting their faces with the EU flag. <laughs> they don't care <laughs> about the EU. They didn't know what it was three months ago. Right? They, didn't, they certainly, you know, I, I was, I talked to people who were going to vote Remain and said, well, tell me about how the Commission works. Tell me about the process. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know what they were voting for, right? They didn't. They didn't even bother to check. So it was just about I'm voting Remain because I'm a good person and because I'm not racist. Well, you know, the EU has some pretty borderline racist policies. It has its Fortress Europe immigration, but it's fine with freedom of movement within its borders. But when it comes to coming from other continents, it's pretty bad. I mean, they're paying Libyan warlords to keep people in camps. You know, this. So you, it's incoherent to me to say that the reason you vote to remain is because you're pro-migration. It, it, it doesn't make sense.
1: But doesn't this, that point is very profound because this is actually what all of this is about, which yeah. is people not analysing what's going on below the surface. They just take a very cursory glance at a very complex issue like Brexit or an t- issue like social justice, and they make up their own minds and then they go with
0: it. Because, because they are told that these people are on the side of the angels. And, and, you know, the girls are pointing and crying, which? So I'll go along with the girls because they're, 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 they're doing God's work. And also, if I don't, they'll point at me and cry, which? Mm. So it's the same thing with Brexit. And then it was the same thing with Trump. And everything got reduced to, you know, good and evil. And it's like nothing is ever about good and evil. There are no good and evil people. It's like Solzhenitsyn says, you know, were it possible to just separate humanity into good and evil and put all the evil people on an island somewhere, mm. that would be great. But as he says, the the, the line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and you're not going to cut out a piece of your own heart. What about Australia, though? yeah okay what about <laughs> no, they're all evil Yeah. Um, but yeah no but this is this is the thing Mate, we're gonna get so many
2: we're <laughs> gonna get so many emails now but just, back, just you... for a cheap joke Andrew I didn't mean to cheapen the point you no, were making no, no, I no, agree with you, you I, I,
0: I, 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 I realise I've gone off tangent but you haven't it, it no. relates to what you were saying about why in in the comedy industry and when when I did that show in 2016 and I was just saying what I knew to be true in a, made, I made it funny obviously yeah. I hope Um. but I realized then something was going on because I think the comedians start... I remember one comic who I'd known for a while saying to me, I hear you're supporting uh, Brexit. I thought you were intelligent. And then people were blocking me that I'd known for years on social media. Comics, comedians. Uh, and then some of them were nervous about some of the Jonathan Pye videos I'd written, which were, were satirizing stuff that they didn't... And I started noticing, oh, because it used to be, I, I used to just assume... Well, we can disagree, right? And we can. I used to disagree with friends all the time. It was fun. Yeah. And we'd have debates and stuff. And then suddenly the climate shifted, and to disagree meant you were the, you were the heretic, you were evil. Mm-hmm. And so, I, so I don't think it was me noticing stuff earlier. I think it was just me. I wasn't prepared to just lie. I, you know. I mean, Brexit. You, the number of comics who are openly pro-Brexit, you could count on one of Abu Hamza's hands, <laughs> right? None. There were four of us. Yeah. And it bec- and you became like a pariah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so um, Andrew, that- but you, you, you're someone who's got an
2: incredible amount of fortitude, but that must have been difficult to, to see that happen.
0: I was just surprised uh, that, for, well, I mean, the, the, the account I give in the book of that there's things like that, the extreme things where people scream, you're a Nazi. Uh, there's the no, thing but even the fact that, that you were worried about coming to talk to us
2: because you were so concerned about, you know, being misrepresented, being attacked, you know,
0: all well, of that. At, at that time, especially though, I didn't understand it. I, I I saw these things online. People kept saying to me online things that I didn't believe as though I believed them. You know, we know that you believe this. We know that you support free speech because you support racists and you want racists to be able to say what they want. And I'm like, I don't support race. Where have I ever said I support race? You're just making something up and describing it to me and at that point now i sort of understand why it happens more and more because it's easier to fight with a figment of your imagination yes. than actually engage with what people say but back then i didn't get it i didn't understand it and i was very mistrustful of people asking for interviews yeah um because i thought it was always going to be a hit job but, yeah <laughs> you know so that's and i'd never heard of you two no offense like I, we, we hadn't gigged together yeah, yeah. like so i, I was like
1: Unbelievable! Are they, I, you come in here, you insult us well, to our faces. I've never heard. But you, you didn't know who I was either. Yeah, that you is know, true, so it's true.
2: like. But I, I, it's not. I'm not trying to dig up that incident. I guess what I'm getting at is, you. It's not been easy. Like I, I'm not. You're not someone who complains about it. It's just occurred to me that being first
0: through the bridge you always take most of the arrows you know what i mean well i i, I still to this day don't quite understand when i when i catch a, you know because so many comedians don't talk to me they've unfriended me and all the rest of it but when i catch a glimpse of something they say online uh you know it i am like i don't recognize myself there like uh, like just casually referring to me as evil or or, <laughs> or like a like uh, 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 far right person and it's like Do- but i'm clearly not Yeah. Mm. But but if you've just decided that I am. I mean, some someone comedian wrote a blog about the Comedy Unleashed night recently, which is the night I run. And they started talking about how the acts at Comedy Unleashed just go on stage to spout racism and attack minorities, which has literally never happened at Comedy Unleashed. And I wouldn't book that person, because that person isn't going to be very funny. Yeah. That's just not a thing. Again, it's like, so I don't know even how to. I'm I'm continually surprised by it, because I'm like, why would you be happy to just live in a fantasy world? Why would that make you... Why not? Why is there not the slightest point of curiosity? If I thought there was a far right comedy night going on, I might want to see what they're actually saying there. And the thing is, a great thing you can because so many of the videos are online. And when you watch them, you realise it's just... It's Comedy Unleashed. It's just another comedy night where, you know, where often people come and do the same sets they do elsewhere. It's just that every now and then we, we cultivate an audience that isn't going to complain about being offended. We cultivate an audience that is comedy literate and understands uh, that, you know, the comedian on stage is not literally expressing their opinions, <laughs> yeah. that they're expressing jokes. Um, and every now and then a comedian will phone me up and say, can, you, can I do this night because I don't feel I can try this new material anywhere else, right? And that's a perception in the industry, whether people deny it, but it is a perception. Um, it's not that we've set up a night to platform far-right people because we hate minorities or that we think that other that comedians can't say what they want on other platforms or on other stages. That isn't what we're doing at all. It's But... It's a weird... I mean, look, when we announced the Comedy Unleashed tour recently, the hysteria from comedians was hilarious. One guy started saying, if you do this tour, you're a fucking scab. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an anarchist. And this is a guy who's got a Radio 4 show, so he's not that much of an anarchist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like, it's weird. And then, and then the blog and all these people going on about attacking the comics on the bill, you know? And, and the, the, the comics we have are from a broad spectrum of political views. Uh, They're mostly left-wing because there's more left than right-wing comics. But there are some right-wing comics there as well. There are different comedic styles. The key thing is they're just all really funny Mm. and interesting. And, you know, that are prepared to sometimes put some of them, push the boundaries. Not all of them even. That's not even a criteria. Um, But it was just... It's like... So there's a tour going around the country which just has a variety of different acts and people come along and laugh. And people are reacting as though it's like a far-right rally or something. It's weird to me. I don't you know, I'm I'm perpetually baffled by it.
1: But the whole thing is weird. Let's just yeah. be honest. This, what you've written about, is fucking weird. It's nuts, isn't it It is. <laughs> you see them talk to one another and like some of them are considered my friends at one point. I mean they probably don't consider me a friend anymore, but they just no, go they yeah, hate you now. Yeah, places. they do. They do. <laughs> like they'll just say things like in casual conversation like, I'm a cis man. Wait, what what the hell is going on? Yeah. You know, I'm a cis white man. It's just it's infected language, and it's effect- infected their worldview. But it's utterly normalized around these people. It's
0: weird, isn't it? It's it's when um, the the left took a turn from class to group identity. Uh, that's the, mm-hmm. the, the, what you know. That's what what happened here. And like, I try and explain this thing in the book, and I see it as like a kind of hydra with many heads. You know, because you've got you've got a, a strand about race gender. And all these things are different. Like critical race theory is very different from queer theory, say, but they all come from the same wellspring. They all come from the same fundamental postmodern assumptions that, for instance, uh, our understanding of reality is constructed through the language that we use. That's why they're all obsessed with language and manipulate ma- the manipulation of language. So they all have a shared body, just many different strands. And, and therefore, it's really hard to describe them. Because what do you call them? Because they they wage the war through language, you know, well, for a start, they called themselves woke. In 2015, they were all calling themselves woke. Mm -hmm. And Jack Dorsey went on stage with a Stay Woke t-shirt. Nika Burns launched the Edinburgh Festival by saying, the next generation of comics are going to be woke and we look forward to comedy's new woke world. No one said, oi, why are you using a right-wing slur? (laughs) No one said that's a snarl word. But then because people like us started using the word to describe them because that was the word they were using themselves, that was a courtesy. I was just using their word, right? And then they say, no, it's just a right-wing snarl word to attack us, to denigrate us. Anyone who uses the word. And so, but I'm like, but I can Google that. And like 10 minutes ago, you were calling yourself woke. We can check that. But they don't care about that because they just deny reality. Mm. Um, So in other words, if you can't name an enemy, you can't defeat that enemy in the marketplace of ideas. So that any term that we come up with to describe them, they will problematize. So I call it the critical social justice movement, but that's kind of difficult to explain. You have to sort of explain it first. You could call them leftist identitarians, but they're not meaningfully I just left-wing. I call them extreme progressivists. But that's misleading as well because they're not progressive; they're regressive. I agree. So, so whatever we come up with, there isn't a way to sort of pin them down, and and that's and that's another reason I wrote the book because I want to try and pin them down, and I call them the new Puritans because the the analogy of Puritanism as being, you know, it's been a colloquial term for many years, which we all understand as meaning someone with a Precisionist and prohibit- pre- prohibitionist tendency, priggish if you like, uh intolerance, sense- intolerant, sensorial. I'm not making I've had lots of Christians get onto me. They're very angry. I'm not <laughs> they usually are, mate. Yeah, man. But I'm not attacking the Puritans of old. I'm very clear that there's a distinction. Whereas the Puritans of old believed in their they had a constant awareness of their fallibility. They were constantly doubting themselves. They didn't know if they were part of the elect or the damned. They 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 knew that they-, they were unworthy before God. The new Puritans don't. They have Extreme certainty. You hear the way they talk. Never never crosses their mind they could be wrong, you know? So I'm not saying they're the same. I'm using a shorthand so that we can understand who they are and where they're coming from. That's the attempt anyway, whether it works or not.
1: But you said that they're not progressive, they're regressive. I would push back on that because they wouldn't identify as being regressive. They're utopians. They want to get to this magical utopia. Yeah. And they think that if they keep doing what they're doing... And, you know, they force out all the bigots, the racists, the transphobes, all of this. They stamp it out. They destroy it. We're going to get to this beautiful utopia where we're all equal.
0: Well, right. And it's not true because humankind is messy. Yeah. Uh, and the great thing about the Liberal Project, I mean, they, they, they reject liberalism quite explicitly. So if you read the, the foundational text of critical race theory, they describe it as being an anti-liberal movement. They don't believe in liberalism. And they say, we live in a society where racism still exists. Therefore, the liberal project has failed. Social liberalism has failed. But of course, social liberalism never makes any claims that it can make humankind perfect. It's an ongoing project. And whereas what we do as liberals is address racism and injustice as and when it happens, what they do is they try and seek it out in the shadows and identify it where it may not exist and often doesn't exist. So they will call an institution, they will say it's institutionally racist. They'll say Oxford University is institutionally racist. And then someone else might say, but the data shows that incidents of racism at Oxford are really rare. They barely happen at all. It doesn't matter because we have some lived experience of someone who's, you know, so therefore, you know, uh, it, it must be. So that's the way they operate. Um, and uh, I don't think they are progressive. And I think we do need to push back in the way that you're describing. But, the, but the, but the okay, I think why it's become so difficult is whereas before, this was being peddled by activists online with anime avatars, or like the people you can safely ignore, the screamers, you know, um, the the insane ones. But now it's 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 from the elites and it's from the people in power. Uh, you know, the the, the 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 these ideologues dominate the civil service, they dominate the NHS, the army, the police, the government. By the way, the Tory government has presided over most of this over the past twelve years. yeah Right. They have just instituted the Online Harms Bill, Online Safety Bill, it used to be the Harms Bill, which talks about legal but harmful speech. Harmful speech? So they're using the lexicon of critical social justice. Mm -hmm. They're part of the problem. When you try and describe the culture war as a left versus right issue, you completely misapprehend what's going on. It's a problem in all political parties. We can't vote these people out. You can vote in a Labour government or a Tory government, you're still going to get the woke. Because if the civil servants' service, if the machinery of government is grinding in that direction, there is nothing you can do. And that's why this is a problem because it is everywhere. It's in all major institutions. And look
2: at what's happened with the leadership election where the one right. candidate who actually was talking quite a bit of sense on these issues yeah. was quite purposely excluded quite. from the vote by members who would overwhelmingly
0: have voted for Kemba baden And this is why I think when you say that you're more positive mm. about the movement, because it hasn't been rooted out among the echelons of power, that's where I get nervous. And it's so easy to dismiss and mischaracterize what's going on here. You know, we get these stories every now and then of like, uh, someone puts a trigger warning on Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea. And this did happen at university. (laughs) and They put a trigger warning saying it contains scenes of graphic fishing. And uh, that's... What?
2: Graphic fishing?
0: Yeah, that was the trigger warning. So animal cruelty? I guess. Graphic fishing. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty graphic because he hangs the fish on the side of his boat and the the sharks eat them bit by bit. So yeah, it's quite graphic, Um, but it's still fishing. And they, 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 they put a, a trigger warning on uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Kidnapped, saying it contains themes of kidnapping, which is implied in the title. Similarly, <laughs> J- Julius Caesar, apparently, <laughs> it's got a plot that revolves around so, murder. Does someone get stabbed? Someone gets stabbed in Whoa. Julius Caesar. Don't read the book. You'll be very upset yeah, about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely graphic. Um, so all of this stuff is funny, right? And we can laugh at this. Mm. But then take a step and think, is it that funny? Because this isn't some activist online saying this. These are major I never universities.
2: Found this funny. Andrew, I never found this funny because like you, I can play the move forward. Yeah. And if you play the move forward, you can see where this, this goes. There's no there's no question about it that if this movement was allowed to carry on down that path, yeah. the damage that would be done. And this is, as you know, the point I make in my book, uh, which is if the West continues to engage in this, it opens up the door for other hostile actors to come in and take advantage of our division. And weakness. Can we talk about the nansers? The what? The nonces.
0: The nonces? <laughs> yeah,
2: uh, you've yeah. got a whole well, chapter on the nonce philosophers.
0: I've got, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've the got pedos. Cha- I've got a chapter on the origins of this. Yeah, um, of, of this thing. Um, and yes, it does. A lot of it does come from the postmodernists of the 1960s. The French postmodernists: Jean-François Lyotard, Jacques Derrida, uh, Michel Foucault, being the most obvious ones. Um, there's an element too of uh, uh, themes and ideas from the Frankfurt School, most notably the, you know, people like Adorno and Max, Max Horkheimer and people like that. Uh, the, the the mistrust of the masses, that very much is something that comes mm-hmm. from the, you know, they think that, you know how like uh, social justice activists, they, 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 they want to take scenes out of comedies that they seem mm-hmm. problematic, which is streaming services are now doing, of course, or they want to ban films or, or various books, you know, whatever. Uh, that comes from this idea that if the masses are in, exposed to popular entertainment they can be corrupted and that's that's something that has echoes of what they believed in the frankfurt school um you know the cancellation of jerry sadowitz's show you know that's an adult show that is advertised at adults with so many warnings saying what it is but the pleasants have said we need to decide on your behalf whether you can buy tickets for that it's not safe for you to buy tickets for that and they actually said you know it's harmful they described it as harmful um, but that means that they believe in this idea that popular entertainment can corrupt the masses, which was the identical perspective that Mary Whitehouse had.
2: Well, it's a American very safety. socially conservative point of yeah, view really if you think about it, which is like you know the 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 lowly whatever yeah. masses must the be plebeians. Pro- the plebeians yeah. must be protected from the corrupting influence right. of de- de- you know de- degrading art
0: and culture and whatever. Exactly. And to go back to your question, Foucault, uh, it, and it's principally Foucault that they cite. They don't cite. Marcuse of the Frankfurt School, even though he wrote an essay on repressive tolerance where he was very explicit about the need to effectively not allow conservatives to speak, <laughs> not allow right wingers to speak. So it's interesting that they don't cite that more. But they do cite Foucault and they won't have read him. Uh, and what's interesting about it, like like all religions, a lot of the faithful don't read the holy texts, yes. you know. And I had to read a lot of Foucault because I was teaching him and I was, and I was and he formed a major aspect of my doctoral thesis so you know i was already steeped in this kind of stuff but in short the, the most important thing is is foucault's n- belief in this nexus of power and language yes that he sees power as not being this top-down phenomenon but that it runs through all strata of society like a grid that runs through um and that's why they always bang on about power structures and the way in which language or jokes normalize hate or legitimize violence that's how they see it mm-hmm. They see this as a fundamentally linguistic discourse. That's how they comprehend reality. So you do need to understand where it's come from, I think. And that's why I I don't want to alienate people or go into it too much. It's just one chapter. I just talk about those origins in a hopefully accessible way. But the
2: reason I brought up the the nonsense as a sort of
0: jokey point is that,
2: I mean, we know that Foucault was a bit partial to that sort of thing. He slept with underage boys, yes. Yes. And... Some people I I see this online. I don't know what it, you know how much basis there is to, it, but are increasingly concerned that this process of never-ending deconstruction yeah. is aimed at deconstructing all sorts of social norms. And one of them, you know, once you get past deconstructing the idea of sex yeah. and gender, then the next thing is to start calling pedophiles minor attracted people, and, yeah. and on and on it, it goes. Uh, how,
0: what do you make of all of that? Uh, I think I'm concerned when I see activists and academics, which are basically the same thing now, basically yeah. hmm. um, <laughs> talk about um, uh, minor attractive persons and how maybe we should bring them into the LGBTQIA umbrella and all of that. And the thing is, it is very few people are saying that and we do have to be clear about yeah. that. I don't think this is a common thing at all. And I think it's a bit conspiratorial to sort of say yes. because Foucault had these tendencies, therefore he's developed these theories that now other you know, secret nonces are, are You do think up on that's conspiratorial, bit, that I his think. theories were partly produced by,
2: you know, his... I don't know why he, he yeah. thought the way well, he thought. Well, yeah, or, you're or, not a mind reader. Or why right. he
0: created the theories he created. But I think but the reason But the, the why, person
2: who sort of, you know, was at the, the, the foundation of transgenderism also
0: yes, had... John Money. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So you're, like, to me, that is not insignificant.
0: It's not insignificant, um, because it's morally reprehensible behaviour. Yeah. Um,
2: but but I it's think, like, why would we, why would we design society around the ideas
0: of two pedophiles? Is, is I guess that's the not why those ideas took hold, though. Yeah, people weren't in within academia. People weren't elevating Foucault. I mean, people really did. There's even a guy called David Halperin who wrote a book called Saint Foucault, towards a gay hagiography. He literally deifies. I mean, when I was at a, a university, Foucault was like a god, and people would invoke him, and that was the a sort of an end of discussion. And I was very skeptical about Foucault, and. You know, I didn't think he was a good historian. And and, and, and I, I wanted to talk about this stuff. And um, I remember being in a conference and this academic talked about how Foucault, Foucault mentioned that uh, this particular sexual activity wasn't, or didn't happen in the ancient world. And I asked the question, I said, how, do you, how did he know? And they didn't know why he knew. And he used to do, he'd just assert this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's it's shoddy stuff, really. But, but the, 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 theoretically, those ideas caught on almost by accident. It wasn't because of what he thought about it. It's, I, I kind of feel sometimes this stuff just happens accidentally mm-hmm. a little bit. You know, these ideas become fashionable. Fashion explains an awful lot. Yes. And then all of a sudden people are like, and also deconstructing the text is fun, right? If you take that approach, when I was studying an undergrad at the English literature, we weren't really reading a poem for its its artistry, for its numinous quality, for its, for its for the poetry of the thing. Yeah. We were trying to work out which bits are sexist, which bits are homophobic. Which bits are racist, and then write up that up in an essay, and you get a first. <laughs> it was moral detective work, right? It's it's you know you you it's really boring yeah. actually teasing out the contradictions in, in the text, trying to work out problematizing the text. Look, I used to do it myself. You know, I used to do, do it about about Shakespeare, and 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 I find that sort of stuff embarrassing now. But um, that and it's easier. It's it's an easier approach, and it's also you know my supervisor robin robbins who i've dedicated the book to i um he said to me once that he, all of this sort of um uh, postmodernist uh, fashion within english literature those books get published because the publishers don't understand the jargon so you have people like judith butler dressing what is it, a relatively simple idea up in 20 different clauses over, overloading, really turgid prose that is just jargon-laden and unpleasant to read and lacking in clarity. But these are ideas that can be expressed with elegance should you wish to do so. They're smart ideas and, and I do understand that difficult ideas sometimes take difficult terms to explain them, but not those ideas. And, and so he was saying that's why these things get published. Also, these theorists were constantly quoting each other, mm-hmm. creating this illusion that they'd generated this body of knowledge that they were important. And they're just quoting each other. And they're flimsy ideas. I mean, that and that's how I think it took on. I don't think it was queer theorists trying to normalise paedophilia. I don't think that's what was happening there. Interesting.
1: Andrew, do you think part of it as well is, it just makes you feel good.
0: Oh yeah, like there's nothing more fun than sort of judging someone else and saying I'm more morally superior than you.
1: Oh, it's brilliant, you know? isn't it? Yeah. Just going, look how great I am. Look the Pharisees had a great time, didn't they? Yeah. The, you
0: know, of course. and And yeah, there's partly that. There's an excuse, you know, like the inquisitors who were strapping women to the rack back mm. back in the day. They were, they thought they were good people, and and it's great because you can behave cruelly and you can bully people, but you can still call yourself a saint. I mean, what what's not to like? Right, you know, and and so many of these people do this, um, but also in, in addition to that, and again, I think that's sort of veering into trying to work out motives, and I don't think we necessarily can uh, do that. Um, I think the other possibility is people do genuinely, they genuinely have bought into it. They genuinely believe it. How could it be otherwise? You know, when you get like, it was in Ontario, wasn't it, last year, where a school board, uh, uh, not just a school board, a body of 30 schools, the board that controls 30 schools, removed 5,000 books from the library shelves because they had outdated depictions of race. And they burnt a number of them. (laughs) Um, And they called this a flame purification ceremony. (laughs) And then they used the ashes of the burnt books to fertilize a new tree. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? And and they obviously think this is this is Fahrenheit 451 but they think this is yeah. that to do something that self-satirizing and it's not just like I say not just activists. That's a school board that controls 30 schools, right? It's a major body. That's why it matters, right? If it was just activists burning books, they do that all the time with J.K. Rowling's books mm. and stuff. They have threatened to burn my book, right? Um I don't care about that. They can burn as many books as you want as long as you buy it first, right? <laughs> do that. But when A school board, a county school board, not only removes the books from the shelves, but burns them and calls it a flame purification ceremony. And they can't see what the implications of that are. I don't believe they could have done that if they could see with any sense. I think they must have bought into this. They must think that those books are dangerous, historical books that represent people in a way. The reason why Dr. Seuss, the estate of Dr. Seuss, is no longer publishing six of his books because of outdated racial stereotypes. Enid Blyton, they'll talk about her outdated racial stereotypes. They republish Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn without the racial epithets. doesn't make sense because it's an anti-racist book. It's a book that satirizes these these sort of priggish, uh, self-righteous, good Christian people who nonetheless enslave their fellow human being. And it takes a boy to see through that Right? That's an anti-racist book. And once you take those racial epithets out, it doesn't work. The satire loses its teeth. Uh, So To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, again, they can only see the language. They only see the racial epithet in To Kill a Mockingbird and they ignore the message of the book. It's kind of like people who don't understand comedy, particularly satire,
2: satirical comedy. They just, they can't understand that somebody could be in a character on stage saying something that they don't believe. They're... It's incredible how humorless these people are. Mm. Uh, and and uh, I, I do find that very strange. But Andrew, um, the, the New Puritans, I I really recommend people get this book uh, and have, have a good read of it. And um, uh, we're going to ask you some questions for our locals, but I will finish. Oh, There's just, just
1: one question that okay. I want to ask. And the one thing I want to push back, you say you, you can't look into other people's, uh, you know, minds and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And that's Francis
2: can. I've, I I, can. I know you can.
1: Yeah, of course I can. <laughs> but look, they, we all know some very, very dodgy people in our industry Yeah. and they're always the most work. Yeah. Yeah, sure. There, there is that coincidence, isn't there? <laughs> but um, why do you think that might be? Because I think they use it as a tool to shield and protect themselves and also attack other people who they perceive to be their enemies.
0: And I also think that is very likely. What I won't say is that I definitively know. I don't know why. Maybe they have bought into it. But it's, look, I mean, I say in the book, you know, s- some people don these sacred robes out of a sense of duty and some people don them as a disguise. And we'll never know which is which. Mm. All, we, all we can do is really push back against the argument and push back against the ideas. You know, if You know, if you're propagating these terrible ideas that are making society more racially divided... Uh, that are attacking gay kids, all of that sort of stuff, and you're doing it for nefarious reasons, uh, or you're doing it because you sincerely believe it, actually it doesn't matter either way. We still need to treat, take the argument at face value, push back at it. An argument stands or falls on its own merits, not whether the person sincerely holds the belief. So it's just, it's just more sensible, I, I argue, to, to assume good faith and destroy the argument anyway. And this is the best way. Because also the other thing is, if you don't do that, you're doing what they do you're you're on their level there you know because when I present arguments in defense of free speech, they make these claims that i'm you know as I said earlier that i'm support trying to support fascism, and you know that's not an argument, is it so that i mean that's that would be my advice yeah. or, or you know even if you know they're lying or you're pretty sure just to, to, these arguments fall apart really easily it doesn't depend on their sincerity Fair.
2: Andrew, thank you so much for coming back. Uh, The new Puritans, make sure to go out and grab that. Uh, And Andrew, we're going to ask you a couple of questions that our local supporters have already submitted for you. Okay, I'm nervous. But before we do, before we do, uh, we, as always, have the final question, which is what is the one thing we're still not talking about as a society that you think we should be?
0: Okay, and I knew you were going to ask this. And every time you ask me this, I... I, I, I forget that I was Freeze meant to, I was meant to In prepare. the headlights yeah. of our interrogative. Isn't that funny? It's the only thing that I struggle to answer <laughs> is that, what do I think we're talking about that we, what, I don't think we don't, sorry, what do I think we're not talking about that we should be talking about? Yes. Um,
2: what is an issue that you don't think gets enough attention that actually really matters?
0: Well, it, to be honest, it's the issues that I wrote in the book which I know we talk about them a lot, but I don't think the mainstream are particularly. Mm. You know, I cover a lot of these issues on my show on GB News um, and other news channels just don't touch them. And so I think we often fall into the trap of assuming that because we talk about them, everyone's talking about them. Actually, most people aren't. And most people don't understand it. I mean, you mentioned earlier, people describing themselves as cis. I would suggest that most people still don't know what cis means. Mm. And, And they certainly don't understand that you know, if you don't believe you have a gender identity, if you don't subscribe to that ideology, describing yourself as cis is incoherent. Like, uh, describing anyone as cis is incoherent because the word means someone whose body, biological sex, aligns with the, the, their gender identity. But you can't call someone that if they don't believe in gender identity. It doesn't make any sense. So, so I would say, yeah, the issues that we've, we are talking about now are the things that most people aren't talking about. Now, that might be a bit of a cop-out. No, uh, but
2: no, that makes sense to me.
0: That yeah. makes sense to Okay,
2: me. Great cop-out, Andrew.
0: There we uh, go.
2: Andrew Doyle, thank you so much for coming back and thank you for watching and listening. We'll see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one or Raw Show. All of them go out at 7 p.m. UK time.
1: And for those of you who like your trigonometry on the go, it's also available as a podcast. Take care and see you soon, guys. We'll see you on Locals. Does Titania ever have sex? Titania McGraw. Uh...